Thanks for joining us in our study of the letter of James, Wisdom for Wholeness. Here, James uses Old Testament wisdom literature, as well as teaching from his own half-brother Jesus, to call the church throughout the age to a life wholly devoted to God. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life, so as to make people complete in him. If you have your Bible, let's go to James 1. Uh, happy Father's Day, fathers out there. That's all you're going to get, sorry. Uh, I got nothing else for you except you need to listen up, all right? I am also a father, so I realize what I need more than anything else is the power of the Holy Spirit to change me, to be more like Jesus, so that I might be Christ to my wife and my children. And fathers, that's what you need too. So, happy Father's Day. Hope your, 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 uh, the rest of your, your kids take care of you. Um, we're going to go to James. I'm going to read James 1, 1 through 4, and we'll pray. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Let's pray. God, we quiet our hearts before you now as the word is shown into our hearts. We ask that you use the foolishness of preaching to expose our sin, to expose our lethargy, and cause us to understand that what we are living for is not merely the American dream or to be prosperous in the way that we think of it, but rather is to be complete and whole in you and flourish as a Christian believer who finds their full satisfaction in God alone. I pray that you draw our hearts to love you through this time. Convict us of our sin and empower us to believe the truth that as James says, we would not be hearers only or someone who looks in the mirror and walks away forgetting what he saw. But God, would you cause us to look at your word and persevere in the looking and the hearing of it and allow us to receive the implanted word, Lord, that it may change us in who we are. We confess our need for you this morning, even in the act of preaching and hearing the word. We need you to help break down our stony hearts so that you might help us receive. We love you and call on you to do your work in us. We ask that you give us hearts that love you with our heart, soul, and mind, and that our hands would be ready to go and love our neighbor as ourselves. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I want you to listen for a moment, um, not look at the text, I want you to listen for a moment to what we're going to hear this morning. These words are for us. He says, my Christian brothers and sisters, whenever you encounter various trials, temptations, tests of every different stripe and color, you should consider this opportunity pure joy. You already know that these types of encounters, the testing of your faith, work steadfastness or endurance in your life. And so, you ought to let steadfastness do its perfecting work on you so that you will be perfect and whole, lacking in nothing. James knows 
that real life is hard. He knows that ridicule hurts. He knows that not getting paid properly makes it miserable for a family to live together in peace and unity. He knows that the threat of losing a job makes one anxious and defensive. He knows that each day presents new opportunities to be broken down and feel a little bit more beat down and a little more worthless as a person. James knows that the phrase isn't if you come into trials, but rather when you come into trials. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. I want us to start by looking at the occasion for this imperative. Right, there's an imperative here, count it all joy. This is what he's telling us to do, count it all joy. But w- what's the occasion? Why is he telling us this? What's surrounding this? The word he uses here to describe what we are experiencing is, is well translated in the in ESV, the translation you have in front of me there, as trials. But we will find the same root word down in chapter 1, verse 12 through 14. You're going to see it look different, though. It's going to come up as tempted or temptation. That's because the same word holds those, both of those different parts of speech. So that word can be called either trial or temptation. Uh, so in verse 2, our question ought to be then, if that's true, what is James talking about? Is this a trial or is this some temptation that he's discussing? Like any other question where we're discussing words and the usage of those words, we must take it into context, understand how the author is using it. What's he trying to do with these words? What is he trying to tell us so that we can understand and be communicated to? So the way to do that, especially as any reader would tell you, is to first understand the context. We're going to understand what is, what, who he's speaking to, what's the occasion in that regard, and then also look at the words that he actually uses around it. That will give us all the clues that we need to know, whether we're talking about a trial or we're talking about temptation. So first, James is writing into a context, as we talked about last week, where there's a fair amount of affliction or persecution or suffering. We just learned last week that the original audience is probably under some sort of social or economic or possibly even religious persecution or suffering. James seems to use this wide and general category of the rich and of the poor, and he places those different ones against each other for specific reasons because he's trying to highlight some very real issues that are happening in this church. These issues were real, like I said, and they're accentuated to the point that James knew that it was the rich who were blaspheming the honorable name by which the Christians had been called. The rich were holding back wages from their workers. They were condemning them, and they were even, the text says, murdering the righteous. There were some very deep issues in this community, and whatever the specific issues were, it's clear that James' reader had fallen into some very bad times. They were, as the text says, meeting trials of various kinds. So we have the context, right? The context gives us an idea that they're already in this. Perhaps you could be talking about this. Maybe we're talking about trials, but that's not quite enough. So just in case you're wondering, let's look at the wording surrounding this word so we understand, make sure we understand that what, it's, what it's talking about. The words used in the context here are very helpful for us. Notice that the words meeting trials or falling among trials are the same words that are found way back when we talked, when Jesus explained the parable of the Good Samaritan. Remember this, the, this Good Samaritan goes to, uh, where he's the one that helps out, but the beginning of the story, the man goes along the road to Jericho and he falls among thieves or robbers. 
that idea of falling among, and the, again, the, the context there is among thieves or robbers, that falling among is the same exact word that's used here. So think about that. Whenever you fall among trials. So I think this is helpful for us to understand when he uses these words, the same type of connotations apply. The man in our story of the Good Samaritan had no choice about whether he would be treated this way. It was not his choice to necessarily be beaten up or to be taken or to be left for dead or to be robbed. Rather, it was something that came upon him. It doesn't really make sense and it would be silly to call this a temptation. Rather, it would make a lot more sense if we called this a trial and it fits much better to our context. And let me make a side comment. Often we talk about falling into temptation. And when we say that, what we usually mean is that we have morally failed somehow. We've made a wrong choice and we've disobeyed and we have fallen into temptation in this way. That is not what this is talking about. We are talking about falling among trials. In other words, it's more than some sort of internal uh, temptation that's going on. It's some sort of external pressure that may come from one specific group or possibly the world that's around us. The wording falling among trials points us to the involuntary nature then of this encounter. And it helps us to see that this is referring again to external pressures. Trials, afflictions, suffering, these will all come to Christians. They always have. In fact, trials will come to all men. It's not something that we, uh, <laughs> it's being singled out for a Christian to have this happen to them. James is certainly highlighting Christian suffering, but suffering and afflictions are nothing new in the world that we live in. Ever since the fall, we have experienced a broken world in which we all have to succumb to the second law of thermodynamics, where entropy and decay is happening all around us. That's where it's headed. All things toward, tend toward this. And it's a world in which the bitter root of sin is ever shooting up new sprouts of evil. It's a world in which pain and suffering unfortunately, are a normal part of the fabric of life. As human beings, we will suffer. And as Christians, we shouldn't be surprised if we suffer even further for the Christian lifestyle and beliefs that we have. But in these trials, in this life of affliction and suffering, how is a Christian to react? How do you react when trials come upon you? How, what is your natural reaction to suffering or trials? Do you feel sad? Do you feel angry? Do you feel hurt? Possibly betrayed? Or even maybe attacked or threatened like a caged animal, like it's happening to you? These are all very normal responses. This is not something that would be abnormal for us to feel any of these different emotions. These are the ways that we feel when we hear of that lost job or when we hear of someone else who is dying or when we don't hear that baby's heart anymore or when we are mocked for our faith in Jesus Christ. These feelings are real. And I'd even say that they're right when not taken to their natural and sinful end. It is what happens at this point that James is so concerned about there may be a natural emotion that happens from trials. But this is where James enters and says, count it all joy. James isn't overly concerned again how we feel. He doesn't say, feel joy. I want you to really feel it inside your chest. Really feel happy and make sure you smile. He says instead, count it all joy. 
It's about thinking a certain way. What, what do you and I do when we, when, we, when we fall among these trials? We feel this way, but then sometimes we go the other way. We wallow in self-pity. We feel sorry for ourselves. We protect ourselves, and, and we, we, we wall it off so no one else can come in. Or even worse, we hold the bitterness very close to our chest. Or we get involved in escapism. We try to drown away our struggles with something else. Or even there's some of us who attack others because this happens. James suggests something different. And more accurately, James commands something different. This is not a suggestion. Whenever you fall among these various trials, count it as pure joy. This is obviously not an emotion. This is not happiness or pleasure or cheerfulness. This is something that involves mental and spiritual calculation. It is a counting. It is a reckoning or a considering. I'd even say believing that this is true. I count this as joy. I believe that this is actually pure joy. Again, he does not say feel a certain way about this. He says count it all joy. If it were simply an emotion, the reaction would be natural and there would be no need to consider it or count it joy. So we need to ask then, what is he talking about? If it's not a feeling, what is joy? Some of your translations may say pure joy or great joy. These are helpful. The reason why is the idea here is not that it would be consider all things to be joy. He's not saying that. All is a modifier for joy. It's, it's James' way of saying it is pure joy. It is all joy. It is like huge joy to be doing this. It is actually that. Again, he is making sure you understand that this is where it's at. Pure, all joy, huge joy. It's not an emotion. So what is it? The joy that James speaks of is this. A settled contentment in the God of all circumstances. Let me say it again. Joy then here is a settled contentment in the God of all circumstances. Not in circumstances, but in the God of all circumstances. It's a confident expectation of future rectification of all things. In other words, God will make all things right. It's an expectation that that is true. Perhaps the best way for us to hear this is from, James, uh, from Jesus' lips in Matthew 5. He says in verse 11 and 12, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all things of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice. What strange words. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Count it all joy. In other words, the same word except verb form, is rejoice. Count it all joy. Rejoice and be glad. Not in the circumstance, like I said, that's dumb. How would you rejoice in the circumstance? No one should seek out affliction or uh, persecution or struggle. Rejoice in the God who is over all circumstances, knowing that he will come to gather his own people. This makes sense to our context. Remember at the end of James, he says, be patient until the coming of the Lord. He knows that there is an eschatological future. Something is going to happen where he will draw all people to himself. Very important for us to understand then to be patient because something else is coming. This is a forward-looking joy that should be a characteristic of each of our Christian lives. Now, this is reason enough. We could stop here. That's enough. But James, 
is more practical than that. He is thoroughly pastoral and helping us understand what's actually going on in our hearts while all these trials are going on. What he is doing in us matters to him, and he's going to explain it to us and help us understand. He gives us some very practical reasons to respond as counting it or considering this to be joy. He is going to spend the next two verses explaining the nitty-gritty of what's happening in our own hearts as trials and afflictions come upon us. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Listen to this. For you know, you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Wait, I do? Yes, you do. You know this. Now, as New Testament readers, we have all the scriptures that help us understand that this is true. But James is saying, you guys actually already know this. How do we know that? Well, I'll give you a little bit of a hint. This morning, we already had one of the passages read to us. Romans 5, 2 through 5. Here, James 1, 2 through 4. 1 Peter 1, 6 through 7. All these help us understand that trials have a different end than everybody else does. What, when we experience trials, we have something different than those that are unbelievers. The trials are meaningless. Like, why would this happen to me? And they take nothing from it. However, Peter, James, and even Paul here is going to help us understand that the testing or a proofing of our faith leads us to steadfastness or endurance. The idea here is that, that encountering these various trials is a testing of our faith. And by the way, it's not just faith in the wishy-washy, like, oh, just hold on tight to your faith. No. This is thoroughly rooted in faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone. And so when he says this, we start to understand what he's saying. The idea that we're encountering these various trials is a testing of our faith and a proofing of our faith in Christ. The act of testing our faith works steadfastness in our lives. Like the words trial and joy, we, we went through those. Let's take a minute to look at testing of your faith and steadfastness. What, what does he mean when he uses these words? First, we understand that trials obviously will test our faith. They cause us to ask whether or not God is actually faithful. These are hard times. They also cause us to make a decision. Are we going to obey? Even though he says, do this, we know that if we do that here on earth, there's not really comfortable, great results for us. But rather we know in faith we are to obey because his way is always best. And through obedience, we flourish. So it's certainly a testing of our faith. It's, easy, it's, it, it's never easy it's really almost never fun or comfortable. It's like a fire, not comfortable at all. A fire that refines gold and silver for purification. In fact, this is how Peter uses this language in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. Let me read it to you so you can catch this refining idea. He says in verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We see the same type of idea in Psalm 12:6 and Proverbs 27:21. This idea of a refiner's fire, in other words, persecution, struggle, afflictions, producing something. Specifically that we know it's producing steadfastness. The testing of our faith through trials is a refiner's fire that purifies, strengthens, and proves genuine in the end that which is being tested. 
This testing of your faith then produces, the text says, steadfastness. Our question then is, what is steadfastness? We're not, we don't use that word a lot. We probably have an idea of what it possibly could mean. Um, but let's see what Scripture says. We're not looking at it as simple patience. Although some of your, again, some of your translations may say with patience. That's fine. That's part of it. Or maybe endurance. Endurance gets it a little bit more. It, it kind of helps us see there's a longevity there and there's an endurance that has more strength involved here. Uh, but it still doesn't capture the whole idea. I, I like the way that one author said it. Steadfastness is faith stretched out. Steadfastness is faith stretched out over time. It's an expectant hope that endures with strength through all of life's difficulties. It is Christian grit. Not in the way that John Wayne had it. It's not based on ourselves and our own toughness, on our own leatherneck ability, where all the glory goes to us and the stories about us and how tough we were. That's not what we're talking about. This is all about the steadfastness that leads, listen to this, not to the glory of us and somehow our own recognition. It is the steadfastness that leads to glory and praise and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The steadfastness is a product then of not trusting ourselves, but trusting Him. In fact, what's going on is we realize that we're weak and that we can't handle the trials. And so instead, He says, count it joy because what needs to happen in you is the testing of your faith. Trusting me. Why do you think it's called the testing of your faith? This is, there is an object to your faith. There is a reason you need faith. There is hope because there is someone to faith in, not yourself. This is, about, this is not about you being strong and independent and becoming a better, more self-reliant you. That's not what this is about. You and I have no claim to what Julius Caesar said, although he incorrectly stated, I came, I saw, I conquered. Who is he anyway? A dead guy who was assassinated by a bunch of the people around him. You see, there's something far greater to live for than what we see right now and here around us. This is not about being strengthened and becoming your own best inner person. This is about being strengthened in our faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And this strengthening through trials and testing leads to a character then of steadfastness. Our Lord Jesus Christ uses various trials to test our faith, to work steadfastness in us for a purpose. Catch that. That's not the end. It doesn't end at steadfastness. There's more to come here in our, in our, in our verses. What then is the purpose of this? Look at verse 4. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. There's another imperative here, another command, right? Let steadfastness have its full effect. Now, this is a fine translation. It's not wrong, but I don't want us to miss something. The word that he uses here to describe, and he calls it have its full effect, is the same word that we've been talking about for the last couple weeks. Let me restate it for you so you understand. Let steadfastness do its perfecting work. What type of work? It's perfecting work on you. It's the same word that we talked about. It was perfect or mature, whole, that word teleos. When Jesus said, be ye perfect, for I am perfect. As my Father in heaven is perfect. He is saying steadfastness does a work on you. 
we our question, what kind of work does it do on you, James? He says, a teleos work, a perfecting work, a maturing, a making someone whole type work on you. That's what steadfastness is doing in you. And immediately, if you've been around Cornerstone at any time, for any length of time, you should, your ears should perk up. What you mean to tell me is that steadfastness works wholeness or maturity or complete in Christ in me? That's exactly what James is telling us. James says, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect, same word, and complete, lacking in nothing. James is commanding us to pursue being whole in Jesus Christ. He's calling us to be perfect, mature, and as we discussed a few weeks ago, whole. Now, I want to make sure that you understand what I'm saying here. When we talk about being mature or complete, lacking in nothing, we readily admit that there is a near fulfillment and there is a far fulfillment. What do I mean by that? You've heard us talk about the already, not yet type of a concept. We're in promises and different concepts. We see some of those things happening now already or the near fulfillment of that. But then we also see things that have not quite happened yet. That's that not yet, that future fulfillment where it will come. There's a promise to that and it will come, but it's not happening yet. I realize that we often, especially as pastors, speak to much more of the already since we're involved in this and this ought to be something that we're dealing with. But it doesn't take away from the fact that there is something still to come, even in this command right here. As we proclaim Jesus Christ, we want to see people made whole and mature so that all of us, all of us are being devoted to God and God alone. This type of maturity and wholeness is commanded all throughout scriptures, undivided allegiance and obedience to God and who he is. This is, as we talked back from Matthew 22, this is loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and loving your neighbor as yourself. It's that idea of that your inside matches your outside. The fact that Christ has conquered your heart and that you love him with your heart, soul, and mind produces some sort of action. You do something about it. Thus, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. It goes out from you to change the world like Jesus did. So, this is about heading in the same direction over and over and over again towards loving and knowing him and being consistent to love the world. At the same time, it's important to see that we are looking to run this course into our eternal home where we will truly be mature and complete and whole in every possible way. As we look toward our heavenly home where we will not just be pilgrims and exiles anymore, we talked about that last week, we look toward ultimate completion then. In that day, we will lack nothing as we are with him forever. Why is this important to mention? Why is it important to bring up like the near fulfillment and the far fulfillment? Well, we want to talk about the near, but we also all know that we struggle with doubt. We struggle with discouragement. And we realize that I still get cavities. I still get cuts. I still, stuff still happens around us. So is this it? Is this the best that it gets? The answer is absolutely not. There is coming a day when we will be made whole and perfect and complete in Christ with him forever and eternity. That is also glorious. And we realize that what we are doing now has a great effect on what's going there. As we trust him, as we are found in him, can we only be found in him in eternity. So we're overwhelmed by these various trials. 
we fall into, James reminds us that Jesus is working in these trials for our maturity, our wholeness, our good, and ultimately for our completion of Christian character as we meet him in eternity. There will be a reward for your labor, for your faith and trust in him. Quoting Paul in his letter in Philippians, he says, I am sure of this thing, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful. He will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So, since this stuff is true, and since our goal as a body of believers at Cornerstone is to present every man perfect in Christ Jesus, mature, whole, and we realize that what James is saying here is that you would become whole, perfect, lacking in nothing, then we ought to pay attention to his command. It makes sense that it follows that we should listen to what he has to say. If we don't, we're, we're really like that person who looks in the mirror and walks away and doesn't care what they think, what they saw. It's on us to listen and pay attention. He says this, whenever you encounter trials, count it pure joy. James has explained it to us. He's encouraged us with the benefits. He's even shown us that it kind of matches up with our church purpose statement. But that doesn't make it any easier for us to do. It doesn't make it easier for us to count all these things as joy. Okay, good, we're good to go. Oftentimes we don't really care (laughs) that it's doing us good. Uh, testing our faith, working endurance in us, and making us whole in Christ. All these trials really hurt. All these trials and suffering, stuff that we really don't want, they're not fun, and they're sometimes just downright inconvenient to the lifestyle that we want to live. Most of us would rather not be built up in this way. We'll let the martyrs and the masochists and have all the suffering they want, but I want a nice, quiet, easy, peaceable, comfortable life. But just spoiler alert, the world doesn't work that way. There is trials. There is suffering. There is affliction. Suffering and trial will come. The question today then really is, what will we do about it? We've heard what he said. Will then we count it as pure joy? Will we really count it joy? When we look at the whole of what he said from verse 2 through 4, When we get to the end, we're like, oh yeah, I want to be made whole. I want to be made complete. I want to lack in nothing. Uh, I can see how that's a joyous thing. But what James has done is he's helped us see the connection between trials, suffering, and completion. And that's why he says, believe believe you me, guys, this is joyous. This is working out to your completion, to your wholeness in Jesus Christ, and eventually so that you might know me fully and complete in glory. So James's attempt here is to help us put those pieces together. Where we live is at the beginning, where the trials happen and where the working of your faith, like in that middle ugly part where we realize it's not a fun time. It's not a fun thing to be in that and to be worked over and to be purified and to have the fire that may come into our life. We don't really like it. Will we really count it joy? It's hard to see that joy should be found in the midst of suffering. It's a ludicrous statement, really, if you don't know Christ. James is helping us put these pieces together. He's helping us to realize where all this ugliness dwells in the middle, we're trying to work this out, that faith is what tells us that there is a purpose to our suffering. There is an end to our pain. There is a work going on as we trust Jesus to do the refining work in our day-to-day, seemingly cruddy and hard lives. Paul's word in Galatians 2.20 is very helpful for us. 
is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life that I live in the flesh, in other words, as a pilgrim, the life that we're living right now as exiles in this world looking for our heavenly home, that life, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. That is it. Trusting not ourselves or our toughness or our own grit. We live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. I promise you, I know that your life is hard. I know that some of you have lost jobs. I know that some of you have been slandered by family and friends. Some of you have lost children. Some of you have lost babies. Some of you live in the constant fear that you will not be able to provide for your family or for yourself. Some of you have been treated poorly because of the color of your skin or because you come from a certain country. Some of you are mocked. Some of you have experienced cancer and all that it has robbed you of. Some of you are just downright alone. There are other things that plague you that I don't even know about. There are things that you may not tell the world and that you do hold quite close to your chest, these trials that you struggle with day in and day out. And if you don't, by the way, like the weather, it will change and you will have afflictions and trials in your life. It's just a matter of time. Do we feel then sad? Do we feel angry? Do we feel hurt, attacked? How do we feel? And, and more importantly, it's okay to feel those ways, but how do we respond? What comes of that? This struggle, these afflictions, these various kinds of trials. Do we do what everyone else in the world does? self-worshipping, self-protecting human beings, attacking others, holding bitterness close to our chest, protecting ourselves, involving ourselves in escapism, or wallowing in our own self-pity? Or, as James has commanded us, do we respond by rejoicing, knowing that even this is actually for joy, and it is joy because it's working completion in me? Do we embrace the protection, excuse me, the perfecting work of faith building or faith testing in our lives because we know that it is making us whole, complete, and lacking in nothing. I'm not talking about plastering a fake smile on your face. I'm not talking about mustering up the courage to be positive. That's both dishonest and proud. So don't do it. If you can hear me today, don't do that. That's a really bad testimony for Christians. And you should be ashamed of yourselves if that's the way you do it. Be honest. The truth is we don't put a plastic smile on, but rather we reckon or consider or count that this stuff, this junk that happens in our life, is joy. Because we know that he is working in us through that trial, that we would not pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, but that would rather we would trust him. All of our joy, all of our power, all of our ability only ever comes through him. So you have no choice other than that as a believer. Don't pull yourself up. Fall to him and him alone. In case I haven't made it clear, I will make one final attempt to help us see that this is not a message of greater self-reliance or toughness in a time of struggle. James tells us to count it pure joy in such a way that the trials we are going through are an exercise, not in exercising our own muscles, it's an exercise of trusting God in his work in the situation. What do we see here? 
What we do not see in this, and he doesn't tell us specifically, is how to do this. Notice that. He didn't tell you, and this is the way you should go about it. He just tells you, do this. This is why. Here's the reasons why. Here's the end result. But never does he explain how we should go about counting this as pure joy. And this is my favorite part. This is what we should do as Christians is look to Christ. James doesn't tell us how to consider pure joy. We can kind of guess if we want to, but we can actually do much better than that. Jesus, in a time of great distress, mockery, and scorn, did not react with a cheery disposition like Mary Poppins as he hung on the cross with a plastic Christian smile. Rather, he hung on the cross in sorrow and pain and hurt. But is it possible that Jesus hung on the cross counting it pure joy? That he considered this to be joy? Is it possible that Jesus understood that what was before him was good and that there was hope and that what was actually to come was joy before him? The author of Hebrews encourages us to look to him for the answers. I love this. Hebrews 12, I'll start in in the end of verse 1, says this. Let us run with endurance. Same word as steadfastness. Let us run with steadfastness. The race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter. That's that same word, making whole, perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured or steadfasted, I know that's not a word, he endured the cross, despising the shame and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This passage works together so well with our James passage. Look how our author both uses Jesus as an example, but then also the source of strength and ability. He says, look to Jesus, our example. He is the one that saw joy that was set before him and he endured or he was steadfast. We too then, by faith, can see that this is pure joy and we can then endure. We can then be steadfast, but not by our own power. Don't miss that. Again, this is not about spiritual toughness that comes from within, that you are tougher than everybody else. Look to Jesus as our example, but also look to Jesus as the only one who has given us the ability and who can work faith in you and me. He says, looking to Jesus, catch these two words, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. He is the one who gave us faith, but then he perfects or makes whole or matures that faith. Exactly what we're after. This is something for us as Christians to glory in. The fact that Jesus Christ gave us faith, the author of it, but then is now at the work of perfecting it. We already talked about Philippians 1.6, that he is faithful to complete that work. He is perfecting it in us. Your Savior and Lord did not just leave you in a better place after your conversion. Now I'll set you in here as a pilgrim. We'll test you and see how things go and see if you're worthy of your salvation. That is not true. Otherwise, you would have to take out the word perfecter. He's just the author. That's not true. He's the author and he's the perfecter of our faith. He's not waiting with a stopwatch and a clipboard to see if you pass the test to qualify for heaven or not. He is the one working in us. He is the author. He is the perfecter. Praise God. Jesus does not ask us to do something that he himself has not experienced. He is truly a sympathetic high priest. We are then following in his footsteps. We suffer as he suffered. 
We count it joy as he counted it joy, knowing that, that, that there was a perfect, end, <laughs> there's a perfect end in sight and it would be filled with joy knowing him for all of eternity. Let's pray. God, we're so thankful for your word. This is not new necessarily, God, but we, it reminds us that what we go through is for our building up, for our testing of our faith to produce steadfastness so that you are working in us, perfecting us into a state where we are perfect and complete and mature, whole in Jesus Christ. We want that to be done in our lives. That's what we want. So we ask that you would help us to count, reckon, consider the various trials that we are going through as pure joy, as your work in us. As we are sorrowful, we have not been completely destroyed. We find our goodness in you, our joy in you, and what you will do. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For other sermons on the book of James and further information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.